This week on Laser, we have a biomaterials-themed episode where we discuss cellulose nanocrystals, using plants as wires for computing, and using green tea to synthesize gold nanostars. distracted sorry <laughs> you, I started, went, you I, went over 10 seconds i started yeah. looking at my phone whatever it's okay we can have more than 10 seconds it's a i saw you look at it though you literally looked directly <laughs> at the numbers and went oh it's time let me pick up my phone i don't have visual cues i have to trust you yeah i was looking i was looking for uh the date of wednesday okay so hi everybody uh this is episode 11 of let's agree science and engineering are rad for February 13th, 2014. Is that right? No. Today's the 10th. Yeah. The 13th is Thursday. Oh, so, all right. For February 12th, 2014. Today's the 10th, though. Yeah, we're going to release it on Wednesday. <laughs> I don't understand. Wednesday is yeah. our release date. Okay, I see. So it's for February. For that time. We're making it 12th. for that time. Yes. Yeah. So I'm Cameron Copus. I am a graduate student at Arizona State University studying a quantum decoherence problem for quantum computers. And my co-hosts today are Alex, who's sitting here next to me. Um, Alex is studying... What am I studying? Iron pyrite for uh, a synthesis Not, of, of iron pyrite thin films for solar applications. Uh, specifically, right now, I'm studying uh, the Schottky barrier character. Uh, for different metals interfacing with pyrite so that we can make a diode. Yeah. Hey. That's cool. It's better than if fool's gold. It can be used for other things. Like yeah. fooling people. That they... And via the magic of the internet, we have uh, Emily joining us. Hi. And Emily, you have not been on here for a while, so we nope, actually... Out. Yeah, we don't know what you're you're doing in your new lab that you joined. Well, I'm in a shiny new lab that's at ASU called the He Lab for Bio-Inspired Dynamic Materials. And as the name implies, we take the, we look at what exists in nature and try to build uh, dynamic and smart material systems to imitate what's going on there. So my PI uh, got a lot of her... Uh, recognition for developing these smart materials, which are uh, polymers and specifically hydrogels that respond to different uh, environmental conditions like temperature and pH changes and whatnot and self-regulate like cells do. That sounds pretty fancy. Yeah. So what I am working on is a pH-based reg- system for glucose monitoring, blood glucose monitoring. Cool. Yeah, possibly as a thing for diabetes later on, but we don't know yet. Diabetes. 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 I'm coming for you, Medtronic. <laughs> so okay. Anyway, let's get started with the uh, first story today. It's sort of a related to your bio-inspired materials lab. Yeah. I guess. Um, sort of. Yeah. And the story we're going to talk about is about the elastic properties of crystalline nanocrystalline cellulose calculated from uh, first principles. So the actual title of the paper is Anisotropy of the Elastic Properties of Crystalline Cellulose I-Beta from First Principles Density Functional Theory with Van der Waals Interactions. Mm. Yeah. It's from uh, Fernando Dri, I guess. I'd be, wouldn't it be Dri? Oh yeah, they didn't reverse the last names all right yeah 
<laughs> so this, this, I guess the the journal that doesn't reverse people's last names would be Cellulose, and uh, <laughs> it was published in like December of 2013, or I'm sorry, October 2013. The wow. journal, the journal itself is called Cellulose. Yeah, yeah. which is funny because not really funny, but it, it makes sense that they would choose the journal Cellulose to put a paper about the properties of crystalline cellulose. It loosely makes sense. I, I, I see it, but it's a stretch. <laughs> it's a stretch. <laughs> I think they could have picked, chosen a better journal for yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So that, that title is kind of a mouthful. Um, I guess we could, we could start just explaining what the title means. Mm-hmm. I don't have too much to say about this one. You don't? <laughs> about the title? Or about the whole, the, whole, the whole paper. Okay. Really? Sure. I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's, I it's, mean... I think it's interesting too. It's I guess like, that's why I don't have too much to say about it. Yeah, I mean that's it. Like <laughs> I'm surprised no one did this already. And didn't they say they were surprised too that yeah. nobody sat down and went, "Hey, let's measure mechanical properties of this." Yeah, well, they weren't measured. These were calculated. Yeah, they're just oh, calculated. calculated. Oh, they, they didn't even they, do it. And you can calculate based off of uh, the bond strength and the you can you can calculate the essentially it's kind of like the elasticity of a bond. The you I, model yeah. model a bond as a spring. I know that, but it's not actually a spring constant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is it? Uh-huh. Yeah. You really can do that. You can say, it's mm-hmm. just like K yeah. squared. It's That works? Yeah, I think it works. Yep. That's where you get all those Raman excitation modes from. Yep. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty Does that cool. have to do with vibrations in the lab? I thought it was just like a nice way to put it. I didn't think that it was like no, really it, that accurate. It actually works really well. Huh. Anyway, so the, yeah, what they used, they did something a little more complicated than just calculating the, the bonds. They actually use density functional theory, um, which is a pretty cool tool. It actually got the uh, Nobel Prize in 1998. It was given to Walter Cohn and John Popel. I believe that's Pouple. <laughs> O-P-L-E. Popla? Popel. Popel? Pouple. Is there a Wikipedia... I'm sure he, they got the Nobel Prize, so I'm almost sure there's a Wikipedia page, but we can, uh, yeah, whatever. No, I, I've Let's heard pretend density. you didn't say who did it. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, I've heard this term dense, density functional theory many times now, so I realize I should know what it is because it shows up in our research. Yeah. So it's, it's a very common tool in, in material science and physical chemistry. And, um, you use it for determining a lot of electrical properties, and in this case, for determining the physical properties. You can sort of calculate those from that. It's a co- really complex simulation that looks at all of the electrons in the material, where they are likely to be at any time, and then calculates all of the bonding and all of that based on the probability of an electron being in a certain place. So you can actually look at like a graph that's that's made with density functional theory, and uh, it looks a lot like a topographic map of like mountains and stuff because it's you see here's this the nucleus of an atom and then around it are a bunch of circles and mm-hmm. they're not always they're not round because they're the bonding changes the shapes of where the electrons are. Right. And you see the probability that an electron is in that position. Well, oh. anyway, density functional theory. A lot of material scientists use it, um, and a lot of physical chemists use it. And it's it's really complicated. Um, it wasn't really that accurate until the 90s, and hmm. that's that's when these guys got the Nobel Prize for it. And they actually got the Nobel Prize in chemistry, since there really isn't a Nobel Prize in material science, since it didn't exist when Nobel was blowing things up with sticks of dynamite. Maybe one day. One day there might be. Maybe. Maybe. There but isn't I, currently? I don't think so. Well, the thing is, you can uh, you can always call it. Physics. Yeah, it's basically yeah. it's either chemistry physics or chemistry. Or yeah, physics so, or chemistry. There you go. They don't really add categories well, based on new sciences. So density functional theory describing these nanocrystalline cellulose. Yeah. Materials. So nanocrystalline cellulose <clears throat> is basically the same as any other nanocrystal. It's just a really small piece that's perfect without any like defects or errors in the in the atomic structure in the crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. So in general, these nanocrystals are really strong. We learn a lot about whiskers and that kind of stuff in in undergraduate um, and how it pertains to 
metals and semiconductors in the electronics industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> they said that nobody had ever, ever been able to accurately measure the strength of these cellulose nanocrystals. So they were curious how strong they are. So after they do the, did all these calculations, which are usually pretty accurate by now, um, right. they calculated that in the strongest direction, so because these are like cellulose crystals, they're long, shaped like a, they're like rods. So they're these like basically rods. Parallelograms. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Parallelogram. Well, you can see prisms. you can see from from that structure. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're like parallelograms. There's some pictures in the in the uh, <coughs> paper. We might steal one and put it on the for the show notes for this this show. Um, but in the long direction, they have a, a Young's modulus of 206 gigapascals. That's and, similar to steel. Yeah, that's that's a. Uh, yeah. Steel's down, about 210. Yep, I wrote down some some numbers for other materials. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Steel is anywhere from 180 to 210. Uh, gold is only 74. Diamond is 1,220, and carbon nanotubes are a thousand or more. Yeah. So they're not super strong, but they are still as strong as steel and uh, cellulose, which literally grows on trees, <laughs> is, is a little bit cheaper than steel. It is? It is. It's significantly cheaper. I, would, I, I was going to uh, say a little bit, really? <laughs> I would uh, yeah, venture that it's significantly cheaper. Now, so, is it uh, particular to uh, – do they – I don't know if I, I noticed uh, if there were like particular plants that you would take this cellulose from. Does it occur naturally, or are we just hypothesizing what nanocrystalline cellulose would be like? I'm sure that nanocrystalline cellulose exists <laughs> in plants. It's probably just really small. So like you have a bunch of very small nanocrystals of cellulose, and they're all just bunched together. So you get a an overall strength that's a lot less. Okay. Similar with a uh, a fiber reinforced composite that isn't with the single long fibers. Like, do you remember what that one's called? Oh, the um, I the short fiber. Uh, yeah, short short fiber. Is composite. it just short fiber? Okay. Yes, I remember the short fiber composite material. <laughs> you mean Velcro? No. No, a, a short. <laughs> so like a short fiber. I'm kidding. <laughs> It's, it would be like... Just uh, the fibers just res- residing in the matrix. They're not aligned in any particular order. Yeah. They're just kind of mixed in there. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. I mean, the fibers are so short. <coughs> the fibers are so short that they don't really orient. Right. Sometimes they do as, orient. As a collective. Like, often they do. Like, they... There's... Or you know what fiberglass is. It's long yeah. strings of glass, and then you pu- they pour epoxy over the whole thing. They... Yeah. So you those, can also, those you can are make long fiberglass. fiber. Yeah, yeah you, you can make fiberglass such that the fibers are much shorter, though. And then it doesn't split in hair-like ways. It's, it's more... Yes. It doesn't really cleave at all in that case. It just breaks in random ways. Uh-huh. So right. this would be like if you took a bunch of glass fibers and then just cut them really tiny and just mixed it all in with your plastic or your steel or... Any metal, anything that you're trying to reinforce, and you just put them in there. I see. They do things like you can put an electric field over where you're trying to make the material and have them all orient a certain way. Um, but it's just it's a it's a cheap way to make a increased strength composite material. Um, just putting a bunch of little tiny fibers in it. Yeah. Uh, it really, I think it's used a lot in polymers. It's what it's mostly used in. Right. You know, just like uh, with other, with just fiber composites, if you pull them apart, they'll fail at where the fibers will pull out of the matrix. Yep. Things like that. Yeah, maybe that's not exactly short fiber composite. But anyway, <laughs> I think, it's, I think it's, the it's idea is pretty clear. It's similar, it's similar to like a glass, except that it's got, it's an amorphous network of fibers. Yeah, they're just kind of all over. Right. Right. So, yeah, we, we use those kind of things... In a lot of applications that don't need like super high strength, but need stronger than whatever you already have. And one of the advantages is that they're really light. So these tiny cellulose nanocrystals could be really useful for something like that. 
because uh, I mean, it's really cheap to just shred up a, a plant and get the cellulose out of it. Mm-hmm. You need a, some sort of selection method. Yeah. yeah. I'm so, sure we'll need some special processing technique for it. But. Yeah. But I think somebody has to theorize that it's even that it's a good thing before anybody will even try it experimentally. Well, rather, I mean, yeah, if you can even isolate a few of them, the question becomes, how do you do what atomic force? How do you do like SN curves on a, a small molecule? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. That's part of why nobody has measured it. But it's I not do. really important to do an individual crystal to see what it really is, because we know that it's at least close to steel because of this calculation. Right. Ah, we don't know that. We think that. Well, yeah, we <clears> think <throat> that. But these right. calculations are usually they're they're pretty accurate. Okay, cool. Density functional theory is, is pretty great. Uh, just a lot of work. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, um, let's see what's what else is important about this paper. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. It was uh, came out of Purdue, the, the first author was a doctoral student at Purdue, and the other authors on it, where it's actually kind of interesting, was somebody named Robert Moon, who's in the chemical systems and material science, I'm sorry, chemical science and material systems department at GM, General Motors. So I guess they're... Uh, really? Yeah, so they're interested in this kind of stuff. Hmm. And then somebody else was from the U.S. Forestry Sur- Service Laboratory. So that's all... Pretty cool. I mean, apparently GM and the Forestry Service are interested in this research. What do they have up their sleeves? I don't know. Maybe you can make stronger cars. Dun dun dun. It's probably just like the fiber for the canvas of the car <laughs> seats or something. <laughs> <laughs> the floor mats. Who knows? Gives it a luxurious feel. Yeah. I guess it has a few other advantages because it's like you can produce it sustainably. It's biodegradable. Technically, that single component is biodegradable. As long as you don't uh, infuse it with anything that isn't. Yeah. So I guess if you're putting it in metal, then it doesn't make the metal biodegradable. But well, like the waste will be biodegradable. Two hundred and six right. gigapascals. Like we said, that's that's steel. Yeah. It's basically right. steel. I'm willing to bet that this stuff is substantially lighter than steel. Oh, so, probably. Yeah, you know, we make, we make all of our we make so many things out of metals, and if we could come up with a viable solution that were cheaper and lighter, you can do a lot to a vehicle by reducing its weight. The first thing that the main the main thing you do is by reducing its weight, you increase the amount of like uh, you decrease the amount of power that you need for the same performance. So you can have smaller and smaller engines to push a lighter and lighter car, which is just as strong. And, you know, has just as much longevity to it and is just as safe. So that's definitely good for fuel economy. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, would that mean it would require less fuel? Yeah, exactly. In that case? Right. For instance, like um, my motorcycle has about 45 horsepower. It's faster than most cars on the road that have 200 plus. Just Why? Because, of the because it weighs 410 pounds and they weigh 2,000 something, you know. Hmm. It gets cool. 60 miles per gallon if just because of that. You made it heavier. If you right. doubled the weight, it would get 20, you know? And it's cheap. So you can grow a tree is pretty cheap. Right. <laughs> grow a plant or a tree. Right. We can make bicycles out of it. Yeah. yeah you add it, add it to the bicycle material, and that makes it stronger and lighter. You can use less material. So pretty good. I hope somebody uh, goes forward with this. Yeah. And, uh, well, today, since today is a pretty well-themed episode. We were just talking about using plants in other materials. For the next, we can uh, talk about plants replacing electrical wires. Right. So let's, Blasphemy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Blasphemy. Blasphemy. <laughs> let's play some music and then go to the next uh, segment. Is that the thing now we do? Is that we're going to play some music and then you put music in? Yeah. Well, we've always done that. I didn't know that. you listen to these all have you ever listened to the podcast? To be honest, I haven't listened to any of them yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I like that. That's okay. I tend it's... not. I tend not to really like things that like I'm involved in. I, involved in. I don't look at them. I don't pay attention to them. Yeah. Because I have to pay attention to so many other things that I'm not involved with. <laughs> I only listen to the ones I'm in. <laughs> That's what I should do. I should I just go know. listen to the ones that I, I'm in. I, I feel like you should do the opposite. It's hard.
This next paper is published on the archive recently, so it's a preprint, not a published peer-reviewed paper. But it comes from the Unconventional Computing Center at the University of the West of England by uh, Professor Andrew Adamatsky. And the title is Towards Plant Wires. So, Emily, Alex, and I have been talking a lot about this. Um, okay. Or I, I saw this and I got, like, super excited. And then you read the paper. Can we get viruses to grow them? Uh, oh no, I didn't. I didn't even think about making viruses grow them. The point is, what this professor did is he 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 does a lot of uh, well, like I just said, he's from the unconventional computing center, so he does a lot of weird computing stuff. This is sounds professor, like it. Yeah, he's a professor who uh, has have had a lot of research published about like slime molds that perform computing tasks. And so this is a real person and not a character from A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I have never, I haven't met him. Um, we could a character like this in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No, but it's the unconventional computing center. <laughs> That's true. It does sound like it would be in that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's pretty cool. He does a lot of really neat, neat alternative computing stuff. Hey, yeah, that's cool. So in the introduction of the paper, he says that basically he was looking through the research, through the, the published literature, and he said he realized that nobody had ever measured the electrical properties of plants before, which it seems kind of weird because there's a lot of plants and we've measured the electrical properties of pretty much everything else. So why has nobody ever measured plants before? There's like a couple vague references of to somebody using uh, the inductance of a cucumber to measure, like, the physiological state that a cucumber is in. Mm-hmm. But is it happy? I, is it sad? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a cucumber physiologist, so... Anyway, so this person decided to study something that nobody else had really looked into. Yeah, which, I mean, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit, almost. You do yeah. a really simple study, publish it, and uh, it's, it's really cool, I think. Or it has the potential mm. to be really cool. They took three to four day old lettuce sprouts and measured the electrical properties of these lettuce sprouts. Basically, the resistance. Although he doesn't actually talk about resistance anywhere in the in the paper. Yes, he does. Does he? Yeah, he he mentions the resistance. Okay. He says uh, 2.7. He he looked at five different ones. Yeah, 2.7 mega ohms. 2.76 mega ohms with a standard deviation of 0.18 mega ohms. Okay, so measures measures the electrical properties of this these uh three to four old day old lettuce sprouts. Um, so the point is that he's thinking maybe we can use electric uh, like plants as wires in some sort of crazy computing device and cool. somehow convince them to grow themselves into this computing shape. So that would be really kind of interesting. So like the way vines wrap around walls and yeah, how, oh, yeah, right. like that. Like, did you see Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too? <laughs> That's really specific. No, <laughs> not the well, first one, the second one. In the second one, the <laughs> flamids for, for her. There's yeah, there's like an entire ecology of food organisms. Yeah, but the the machine that makes all these food organisms is like hooked into a bunch of vines that come out of it like they look like leads on a on a printed circuit board. Mm-hmm. That's what he wants to do with these with these plants eventually. I think that's cool. I I think it's pretty cool. It's a neat neat idea. I'm all I for be that. A plant computer. Yeah. I want a plant computer. So he uh he measured the the electrical properties of these. Got an average resistance like Alex already said of 2.76 mega ohms, which sounds kind of high, but it's not that high compared to some of the uh, ceramics that we already use for a lot of electrical things. So it's not as conductors, though. Not as conductors. That's true. That's true. Do you have true. any examples, just just so I can get a scope of it? Electronic properties are not really my expertise. I was uh, just wondering. I mean, typically semiconductors are in the kilo ohm range. Um, you know, if you got doped silicon, you're talking. Yeah, semiconductors it's, it's kilo ohm range. are in kilo ohm centimeter. Metals are in ohm centimeter, and uh, dielectric materials are in the kilo ohms region. So they're okay. used for for microwave devices and uh, any sort of radio or, or 
dielectrics are in the kiloohms? Yeah. Microwave dielectrics Mega-ohms. are in the kiloohms. No, no. Microwave dielectrics are in the megaohms. Oh, you said kiloohms. You said kiloohms. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> All right. So conducting materials like metals are in the ohm centimeter range. Mm-hmm. Semiconductors are in the kilo-ohm centimeter range. They can be in the hundreds of ohms if they're very highly doped, like yeah. very highly doped uh, NNP-type silicon will, you know, anywhere between a few a few ohms to a uh, hundred, maybe 150 okay. ohms, something but, like that. But we don't call that a semiconductor anymore. Highly doped silicon is a conductor, right? It's a con- – it's – well – yeah, I, I wouldn't call, call it. A I wouldn't call 150 ohms a conductor. I'd call it a near degenerate cell semiconductor. Okay, all right. But and then uh, dielectric materials like used in transistors and that kind of stuff are in the mega ohm range. Okay. Transistors and and radio waves and microwave dielectrics that kind of stuff. So cell phone towers and computer chips. You said wait. Right. You said the dielectrics in the in the in transistors. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The dielectrics okay. are in the mega ohm range. So similar to what the lettuce seedlings are. Yeah, then? so these are okay. two mega ohms, so not really that high. It's it's measurable electric properties. Um, they'd still be considered an insulator, but here's kind of where we get into Alex and my problems with the uh, with the paper. So the the way he actually measured this was he just they took these lettuce seedlings and put them across two strips of aluminum foil. With a, there's a 10 millimeter gap in between the two pieces of aluminum foil, mm-hmm. and they just laid the seedling across that and put drops of distilled water on both sides. So you basically just have this lettuce seedling floating in a drop of water, sitting on a piece of aluminum foil, and that's how you're measuring you're measuring the electrical properties across that. As much as I think this is a really awesome study. I don't think that that's making a legitimate co- electrical contact to any sort of yeah. possible electric transfer inside the, the uh, yeah. It's just resting on the foil. It's not even like holding it in place. It's just kind of yeah. It's not pinched or anything. Which it's, it's making contact by the fact that the water has surface adhesion, but the water right. itself is distilled water. It's not de- it's not deionized water. They just said distilled water. But distilled water still is not a great conductor. Is it an insulator, or is it just not a great conductor? I don't know. Google says. I can imagine a number of reasons why he would want to use distilled water. One thing is, let's say that there's some sort of chemical, some sort of chemistry to the lettuce that allows for ionic conduction, let's say. Uh, Pure water is 2 times 10 to the 5 ohm meters. So DI water is 15 mega ohms. So that's 15 times 10 to the 6, but distilled water is 2 to the 5, so it's 0.2 mega ohms. So it's still a really high resistor. It's, it's 0.2 mega ohms. It's higher. It's lower than what they've measured. Yeah. But it's still pretty high. So you you have to think that they're not making a good contact. I mean, Alex, well, your, your whole problem right now with your research is you've been working for Alex. You've been working for weeks to just okay. to try to find the right metal to make contacts to your yeah. I found material. it really quickly. You found it, but yeah. you didn't just use distilled water. Well, probably just because that's not a permanent contact. Well, the reason why, okay, so it's it's kind of different though. Okay, so let's say let's say that you have a resistor. You have a 10 mega ohm resistor, and then you make you make contact to some metal, which has essentially zero resistance in comparison to the resistor, with something that has one mega ohms resistance, right? That means that your total resistance that you measure is 12 mega ohms because you have one at each side of the contact, right? So that means that the resistance that you add from the contacts is uh, 20% of the resistance of the thing that you're actually measuring. So it throws you off. In this case, the resistivity of the distilled water is an order of magnitude less than what they're but measuring it's, it's here. it's still high. We can't be sure that it's making a good contact because you still have to think about energy What is a good and- contact? If you have an insulator, if you have something that's substantially less of an insulator bridging the gap between a metal and an insulator, then the insulator shouldn't matter at all, unless you're talking about some sort of interface effect, which is a quantum effect. And it's totally, I mean, we're talking about a biological thing here. How can we figure that out? You know? That's true. I think it's possible, though, because basically you're just, I mean, plants have to conduct electricity. That's how they get their electrical signals from the leaves to 
the roots or from the roots to the leaves or whatever. That's how mm-hmm. humans, that's how your nerves work. They're electrical wires, but they're not they don't need electronic. To be. They're ionic transfers. Right. So, if they're ionic transfer, then, you know, if you have, remember what I was trying to say before is I can imagine reasons why you would use something like distilled water for a contact. And the main reason why is let's say that you have this, you have this, uh, little plant root. And there's some sort of chemistry going on in that root that allows for ionic conduction. Mm-hmm. You want to preserve that chemistry. So allowing that chemistry to move through or to take place in a medium which is not going to affect that chemistry, distilled water would be perfect. Okay. You know? So whatever – basically what I'm saying is let's – you could you could have used saline. You why not? You used the conductive yeah, liquid there. Yeah, why not there. salt water or sugar water? Something well, that the plant that's not good likes. for a plant. Well, well that's sugar it water. Could, it could be because the, the chemistry – it, you're adding a, a variable there. You're adding a variable there that you don't necessarily understand. It would change the, the properties plant. of the plant. It could change the chemistry mm-hmm. at the interface between the liquid and the plant, which okay. may change the conduction. All right. See, I'm worried that the inside of the plant is actually an okay conductor, and then the problem is that because you're using distilled water, for some reason at the interface on both sides, you've sucked out, you've you've destroyed the the electronic transport mechanism through the plant. So there's like a barrier on the outside of the root so to prevent conduction from happening from outside to the inside. And the I think the distilled cut. water the cut. I don't know. I don't know if the root is cut. And even if it is, the distilled water might like cause a uh, a concentration gradient that that gets rid of whatever in in there. So if you're transferring salts the opposite direction, you're not going to be able to push them back because of the uh right. Well, I mean, really, the problem is we, we just don't know what type of conduction mechanism it might be. So across, when we were yeah, talking about how we might do it, we would be we would be looking for an electronic conduction mechanism. We could also specifically test for a surface electronic conduction mechanism versus an internal conduction mechanism. Yeah. But this appears to be testing for a for either ionic or electronic conduction, simply because. If you have electronic conduction, if you have an insulator and you have, you know, a good, a good path, even though it might take a large voltage, you still should get some sort of continuous IV curve. And he didn't actually do, he didn't actually do IV curves no. here. What he did was he measured the voltage over time, over 10 minutes. And what he noticed was that over, <coughs> over time with the same current on the, uh, across the, the plant, he gets a huge difference in the voltage that he measures. So they think that that's due to some sort of uh, oscillation in the plant. That And then they say they mention that it's it's not like an observable oscillation frequency. So it's, it isn't something that's frequency dependent. It's just something to do with the, the nature of the plant's conduction. Um, which this seems kind of kind of strange to me because these, these measurements just don't look good. I would look at these and say these are mostly noise. Even though the scale on the plots is strange, so it looks a lot worse than it actually is. But I don't know. I still don't. I don't think that they're the best measurements that could have been made. I think that there's a better mechanism that should have been looked for. Well, so when he's measuring resistance, I look at this and I, I would look at this and I would say you're measuring an insulator and you're approaching the sensitivity limit of, of your, the equipment. your device. Yeah. So what's going on here is you're, you're measuring your device. Is really what you're doing, and so you're not measuring accurately the resistance of this thing. He's um, measuring his his voltmeter. Right, you're measuring your voltmeter. is basically what you're doing. So, so that the next thing that causes me a little bit of well, there's there's two things. One thing I say, wow, that's great. The other one I say, wow, that's terrible. The first thing is he's doing this v in v out thing, which I don't quite understand. But basically, what it seems to be doing is he's putting a a volt source <clears throat> across. The wires, and then at the same time, he's measuring the voltage across um, the I said wires, but across the sprouts, and he sees the difference between the voltage that he sources, controlled by a machine, and the voltage that he actually measures moving across the, um, the plant. Right now, this is repeatable. This data is absolutely repeatable. He puts this voltage across, he gets a certain voltage that he actually measures. And the standard deviations for these results are small, very small in comparison to the V outs that he's he's measuring. But I say that's great. That means you put a voltage across this wire 
and you measure an energy change across it, and you can do it over and over again and get the same thing. Great, you've got a good connection there. But then the next thing he does causes me to think, well, you were not measuring the plant because he starts doing a, um, and he starts looking at impedance, which is frequency dependent. And if you look at what he calls the dominating frequency, which is basically he's got this plot where he shows the power usage over a frequency range, and there is a dominant peak. Whatever that dominant peak is, he's measuring at what frequency is that dominant peak at. And the standard deviations for these are 50% or greater. So at that point, it says it says to me, okay, you're you're measuring the impedance of not an insulator, but you're measuring the impedance of an open circuit. So what are you actually measuring if your if your standard deviation is that large? That's my problem with it. Personally, I think he's measuring the water. I think he's measuring the water in the plant and not the plant itself. And so, but that's uh, all right. The, you got to think about the final goal of this is to have a plant grow and then to be able to use that plant as a computer. So the water in the plant, if that's the best part, then that's what you want to use. You don't care about the rest Which of it. Which is a tube full of water. <laughs> that's like that's like you saying, if I have this copper wire and it's wrapped in plastic mm. and I measure the resistance and I say it's one ohm, you would say, oh, you're just measuring the copper. You're not measuring the plastic. That's true. Okay. I see that. So, I mean, it's it's kind of the point. He's, he's measuring what he's trying to. I just, well, really, I don't think he's actually, me- I don't think that this is actually measuring what it what it's trying to. Me neither. Um, but it's a step. Well, I don't know if it's actually publishable. It's been published. No, this is the archive. Oh, I see. <laughs> so it has not been peer-reviewed or actually published yet. He just wrote this and posted it. But that, that kind of goes on to the his next experiment, which is that they actually want to grow these lettuce sprouts in a, a maze or a labyrinth. I love these diagrams. Right. These pictures are awesome. They some... took, you know, those cheap little plastic mazes that you had the tiny metal ball and you had to roll it around and try to get it in a hole. I'm pretty sure they busted the top open and put the plant inside of it and see so if it could grow. <laughs> yeah. <in the> maze. <laughs> That's awesome. But then they put lights in some of those walls, though, to try to... Encourage it to grow a certain direction, but so no, far, super neat. I like it. Yeah, it, it's super neat. So far, it didn't work, is what he said. But if they can figure out how to do this, like I know that he's figured out how to grow the slime molds through a maze, so hmm. the slime molds will solve the maze on their own, and then end up with only the quickest path to the exit or to the the food that they put at the at the other end of the maze. So it's actually kind of cool. But it didn't work that way with the plants. Um, oh. I think somebody might might be able to figure out how to trick them into doing this. Maybe probably this guy, because he seems to be good at that. Yeah. Uh, well, with encouraging plants to grow in certain direction, there's these um, uh, plant hormones called auxins that are affected by sunlight. Uh-huh. So it's the reason why trees will grow in a or any plant really will grow in a certain direction around the shade or towards the sun anytime your flowers or your indoor plants will grow towards the window is because of auxins so is that why plants in space under grow lights work grow fine it doesn't care about the gravity right or do yeah. they actually grow fine i guess is my my question well, I, I don't i really don't know about plants in space <laughs> right it's it's what encourages encourages your plants to grow upwards so okay. they did some experiments where they like would cover the tops of the plants and they'd grow one direction and they wouldn't cover them in another direction and i kind of vaguely remember this from a class that i took last semester one of my friends did a presentation on all of this but the point is if they can encourage but they, it needs the light. What what allows uh, these hormones to behave the way they're supposed to is the sunlight itself. So we'd probably have to spoon feed the plant through the maze with imitation sunlight. Okay. How about a laser? If you use a laser and you simply shine it at a spot, and the glow is coming from that spot, so the brightest point would be that spot, and it would head towards it. And then you just move the laser slowly. That's sort of what they did, though, with this, was they in the maze they had certain 
parts of the maze were glowing and then other parts weren't. And I didn't, I don't know if they turned certain ones off, but some of the walls were glowing, so the plant was supposed to grow in that direction towards it. Right. Um, it may t- take like careful tuning and patience to go through it. I don't yeah. know. Well, it seems like we have a lot of questions about this paper. Maybe we should try to get in contact with this guy and uh, talk to him about it. Maybe he'll talk to us. Maybe we yeah. should email him and say, hey, we we actually want to try and make a plant wire. Replicate this. Um, yeah, maybe you can work in partnership with him. Maybe. Yeah, so that'd be pretty interesting. Yep. We will uh, contact him. All right. You guys have anything else to say about this? No. That's no? Cool. I don't know. I get excited about any time that we cross the bridge between organic matter and electronic devices or anything that kind of get you know what the, our curriculum in material science we're kind of like taught about all these things that aren't alive together we talk about semiconductors we talk about ceramics metals composite materials polymers whatnot but none of those things are ever spoken about in relation to nature really other than finding it out of the ground and putting it together ourselves i totally think it's it's awesome too i always think about like how technologies can interface with living things in a way where they form kind of a symbiosis. And I'm like, exactly. that is like, that is like the place that our technology just doesn't go right now. And okay. once it starts to go there, I think that things will kind of, things will change really rapidly once that starts. Well, that's why we need you two researching biomaterials. Yep. All right. Well, since, since uh, you like using biomaterials in regular materials maybe uh in the next paper we can talk about how we can use some plants to uh make some electronic materials instead of the other way around no that doesn't really work does it somebody come up with a transition (laughs) well Uh, maybe we can have bacteria design computers for us that's not a transition uh, that's a good idea but that has (laughs) nothing to do with our green tea gold nanostars So this next paper is also from the archive, uh, and uh, this one comes from Tohoku University in Japan, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, because I don't exactly speak Japanese. I think that's pretty close, actually, because I'm a nerd and I watch anime in Japanese, and it sounds like the right sound. <laughs> anyway. Something that is, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so, something that's very culturally important to Japan, or how about stereotypical of Japan, is uh, green tea. Japan. I think it's an important part of their culture. China. Yeah, okay. China's more stereotypical when it comes to tea. Green tea, though, everybody thinks about Japan. Right. Why? Green tea ice cream? Tea is they the have, Chinese thing, though. Yeah, but green tea is the, the Japanese tea ceremony. Yes. Everybody okay, thinks about yeah. the Japanese tea ceremony. That's totally... That tea is, like, weird, though. It's Mashita, totally different. It's so good. I've never had it, but isn't yeah. it... It's not... It's, like, powdered. Yeah, it's powdered tea. It's so good. I want to try it. So, this paper is... And it's titled... Green tea-induced gold nanostar synthesis mediated by silver one ions. Somebody want to introduce this one? I don't then, understand this paper. Why, why don't you tell us? Like starfish. I'm I'm a little confused about this paper actually. Okay. I don't really get it. Well, because I I guess something in the green tea is what facilitates this growth, and that's why they were using it, right? No, they used the green tea to reduce the silver. So the silver had a certain, you know, it was a uh, silver three, and then they used green tea to turn it into silver. One or silver zero, I believe, such that it creates a proper <laughs> coating that you can then grow the star structure. You can then use to grow the star structure on top of the sphere structure. Yeah. Okay. So, so what it is is it's the, all right. I can I can actually go through the whole synthesis. Is they mixed silver nitrate. Uh, silver three. nitrate is AgNO3, mm-hmm. and they mix a, a solution of silver nitrate with cetyl trimethyl ammonium bromide. Um, which is not really important for this podcast, what that is, uh, along with a, another solution of chloro... Chlororic acid trihydrate. Chlororic acid trihydrate, which <laughs> has the gold in it. 
So they right. mix these three together, and this is all dissolved in water. It's a water solution. Then they add the green tea to it, and the green tea allows the silver nitrate to uh, decompose into just a silver one ion, and then that silver one ion is where the gold in the chlorauric acid trihydrate can come out of that solution in order to attach to the the uh, silver from the silver nitrate and then form a nanostar on, along that. And a nanostar is similar to like a well, why don't you explain it? So yeah, like like Alex said, it's just it's nucleated on that silver ion, right? That comes out of the silver nitrate. I guess what I don't understand is like why would you? What does green tea do to it? Green tea is just a reducing uh, agent that's cheap and not toxic. So the polyphenols in green tea have an effect on it, or like what part of green tea is it that? Well, I need to know the biochemical properties. <laughs> Let, hang on, let me tweet a chemist and see if he's up. Well, when you look up the, when you're trying to find the chemical properties of tea, of green tea, you get a lot of like antioxidants and calms your spirit and like all kinds of weird stuff. So I think that's one of the things that kind of hinders us from using, uh, from bridging the gap between biology and material science is that some of these things have been so enveloped by all this metaphysical that people try to sell to each other uh it kind of no one can really take you seriously (laughs) when you say i used green tea for this really really green tea that's that's kind of the funny part though is that we don't really know what's what's in it well the uh gold nanostars have special plasmonic properties so uh according to wikipedia here we go plasmonic narrow Nanoparticles are particles whose electron density can couple with electromagnetic radiation of wavelengths that are far larger than the particle due to the nature of the dielectric material interface between the medium and the particles. They have these these surface states that can couple. That's what it means. So so gold nanostars are they're used in a lot of photonic devices. Right, uh, such as solar cells. They yeah, like LEDs. Right. Yeah. It's sort of, it's a lot, pretty similar to uh, like quantum dots, if you ever see something about that. Yes. yes. There's a lot of, there are a lot of cool pictures of quantum dots right. fluorescing different colors based on the diameter of the quantum dot. And yeah, it does, it has to do with the, with the surface properties of the nanoparticle and how it reacts to incoming light. Correct. And they're also using these old nanoparticles as a method of delivering, of drug delivery for cancer treatment. Yeah. And not only that, Alex was also talking earlier about how, um, Often these nanoparticles are used in imaging cancers because uh, they're small enough that they can go all the way through your body. And then because the cancer is growing more quickly than the rest of your cells are, it's mm-hmm. more likely to uptake these nanoparticles. And then you can use a, a imaging technique to NIR. see. They're NIR sensitive, most likely. NIR is what? Yeah, near infrared. Near infrared. Yeah, yeah near infrared lighting. It, it makes sense because yeah. if you have... Think about it like this. You've got this starfish shape. The end of the little rod or the rod that comes off the sphere is going to be far more surface-like than the bulk's more bulk-like center. And so it makes sense that you will have more surface states that might have specific optical properties that you might want. In this case, it seems to be the case that those surface states are, you know, uh, almost like, almost like they have a band gap and that they will respond to near-infrared light, and so you get a specifically high amount of absorbance from NIR, and so you can use that as an as an imaging technique Yeah. to say, oh, look, we can see them all there. So you can know exactly where the cancer cells are and not the other cells. Right. So right. it's very similar to what you were working on previously in your last lab, right, Emily? Yeah, except we were using uh, carbon nanomaterials instead, carbon nanotubes. But it was the same... But it was the same concept. It would be attracted to the leaf. Uh, cancer cells, lesions, or whatnot, and we'd use near-infrared imaging techniques to determine where it was, so it'd yeah. be attracted to the same cells, so, except everyone was worried that carbon nanotubes were going to kill you, so. Well, who knows, maybe now we should be worried that gold nanostars are going to kill us. Tiny gold starfish are going to get in your lungs. You get a star, because you're special. Hey, it's all possible, you never know with nanomaterials, because... The things that your cells 
take in our nano size all the time. Yeah, part of the like carbon nanotube thing was that they would do that. They would get the carbon nanotubes in the cancer cells, and then you could excite it with a infrared laser. Exactly. It would just burn the cancer cells from the inside out without burning anything else. So you could probably do the exact same thing with these nanostars. You're right. They, um, they would take advantage of the thermal properties of the carbon nanotubes to try to break down or overheat or whatever might actually happen yeah. to the cancer cells. So this is another pretty straightforward paper. Um, again, it's not published yet, but it, it seems like they knew what they were doing and that they were, this is more of like, a, oh, look what we were able to do instead of a serious... Right. I don't know if you could get funding for, hey, we were playing with green tea. Yeah. Because as I said, that just sounds hokey for some reason, you know. I'm sure that I I believe the results. They they seem pretty... Yeah. No, I'm not saying they're making things up. I'm just saying if you were NIH or something, like, would you... It'd be hard to get get funding for something like this, yeah. So making these gold nanostars is a pretty important thing. And I guess, however, you can make them using as few dangerous precursors as possible. Um, I don't actually know what they were using before that is any more or less dangerous than what they use in this case. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of the uh, naturopathic people will be super happy that you can make these using green tea instead of chemicals, because there's no chemicals in green tea, right? (laughs) Green tea. Green tea is relatively inexpensive. If it's a commodity that you can purchase at the supermarket, I couldn't imagine buying, like, pallets of it from Costco. So what did, what did we say about this paper? We <laughs> talked about the synthesis, that they they mix these chemicals together, let it add the green tea, let it sit for 24 hours, and then they centrifuge out the nanostars. Mm-hmm. Um, this, these nanostars are better than nanoballs and nanodots for the, the applications that they want. Right, the ones that we listed yeah, because previously. The, yeah, because they have higher surface area, like Alex mentioned previously. Um, applications are drug delivery for cancer, imaging for cancer. This is better than that's where it's better than using the nanospheres. Right. They're they're more photoactive to the near infrared lasers, and kind of cool because you can see through your body and just see the cancer cells, but nothing else. That'd be pretty neat. Yeah. And they're also used for surface enhanced Raman spectroscopy where they, they would put these on the surface of a material and be able to even better see the excitation modes. Hmm. So it lets them detect almost individual molecules or very, very small features um, you normally wouldn't be able to, to image. Right. It's Raman spectroscopy, which is a very complicated technique that uh, we will attempt to explain in a later episode. <laughs> Probably. Probably. It's a tough one. Hang on, I just got two Twitter responses. Okay, so I uh, I sent a, a tweet while we were, earlier during the recording to uh, Chad Jones from the Collapsed Wave Function podcast. Um, that's at thecollapsedwavefunction.com, or he's on Twitter at thecollapsedpsi. And he tweeted out to his followers asking if anybody knows what in green tea is used as a reduction agent or as a reducing agent. Somebody responded and said that... Um, Citrate is often used to reduce gold 3 plus to gold, so there's probably a lot of compounds in green tea similar to that that uh, are also used to to reduce, that that would be useful in reducing the silver. Um, So that's where we're going to have to leave it for now. So thank you to Chad and to Jeffrey Murphy, who is at Murphy's Lab on Twitter, for for that answer. That makes a little more sense, makes it a lot less arbitrary yeah but that, that also that also makes me question the motivations again if you really need a reduction agent there's a lot of things that you can use perhaps and, they were uh, just going for the novelty it, it it could be the novelty they mention in here that they did it because of the something about the environmental effects which i that's not an argument i really buy about the uh, balancing of your chi i it might be a chi balance thing <laughs> I don't want to argue with that. Could have been an accident. It, Could have been an accident that they were like, well, we have to rash. We can't be like, well, uh, I spilled green tea. We in spilled my green experiment. tea in it. And uh, I mean, they could do that. Like I spilled green tea and then it works. Or they could be like, I love we used green tea because we're smart and we knew green tea would work. If it was an accident, I would want to know that because that would be even a better story. Yeah, I agree. 
So yeah, I, I question the motivations of why they used green tea if they didn't mention that it was an accident. Because it seems like there's a lot of things that they could have done, and uh, let's find the quote. They I think said, you're right. Yeah, they say they say that the reducing species used in in getting rid of the seeded and seedless growth methods are usually harmful to be used in vivo. So it doesn't actually say what's harmful and whether harmful means harmful to the reaction or harmful in an uh, conservation environmental sort of way. I'm guessing so, because they're saying in vivo, it means harmful to you. You know, harmful, harm, harmful to the thing which you are in vivo of. Yeah, you know. possibly. possibly. That's what I would guess. So if this is in the archive, that means it's just kind of like sitting there to be reviewed, right? Not necessarily. You don't have to publish anything that you post in the archive. But we can review it. You can. It's just this is a archive is a yeah that that's probably why it's posted in the archive. The archive is a preprint server. So it's supposed to be like your final draft that you're going to submit to a journal. You post it on the archive so everybody can get, read your final draft for free. It's public and anybody can read it. Okay. But it's not the actual version that the the journal has accepted. Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is can you leave any like comments or uh, Yeah, yeah. It, actually, it, it allows you to, to contact the authors to leave feedback. That's one of the can best we, things about it. Can we send them this portion of the podcast? <laughs> Yeah, I, I usually. <laughs> so this one was actually posted on the archive just on January eighth. Um, okay. It doesn't mention that they've they've attempted to publish it yet. They only just posted it. So, um, in, in general, when a paper is actually published, you'll see that they've updated their their entry on the archive. Okay. But for now, this is sort of a new paper. Um, so it might be interesting to contact them and see what what the other reduction agents are in this in this process that they would usually use and uh, how this is better. Or at least let them know where they're missing some pieces that they could fill in. Yeah. All right. So I think that was a uh, pretty good show. I'm, I'm thankful that Twitter helped us get a little bit more information than we already had. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. This is a not a, not a perfectly on-topic show. It's okay. Whatever. That's what you get for getting Alex and Emily to uh, do. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to separate you two in the I'm future. Sorry. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Agree, Science and Engineering are Rad. Um, as always, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave a comment on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can contact us on Twitter. We are at laserpodcast. Or you can send us an email to contact at laserpodcast.com. Um, you can also email any of us personally at I'm Cameron at laserpodcast.com. Emily is Emily at laserpodcast.com. And Alex is alex at laserpodcast.com. We've already we've already talked about this. It doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm going to set it up before okay. this it episode goes. Now. It exists now. Yes. Right. Uh, in addition to that, we want to remind you that we have a Facebook page that you can like. We are fa- at facebook.com slash laserpodcast. And to please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio and leave us a rating and a review on there. Since we're at the end of the show, I actually want to talk about we had uh, one person leave a comment on the website. Really? It, yeah. Oh, wow. From Alfonso, uh, who said that he left us a rating on iTunes, but that it didn't show up because there still aren't enough ratings yet, so iTunes won't display average statistics. Uh, what a said, shame. Yeah, that's that's sad. So we need more people to go out and leave us iTunes ratings so that other people can see we're a five-star podcast. Five stars. Yeah. Plus so, or minus what? Well, we won't know. Three. Right now it's five <laughs> plus or minus five because... <laughs> iTunes won't even let us see the rating we have yet. I'm extrapolating. So, thank you for joining us, uh, and I'm good night. I'm gonna go bake a fish. What? I'm gonna go bake a fish. <laughs> Alex is gonna go bake a fish. I hope everybody I, else has a good night, too. I am gonna bake Hi a fish. Hi, everybody. Bye, good podcast night. land. Bye, Emily. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been The Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree, Science and Engineering are Rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook or Google+. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about, in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye.
send your angry emails to alex at laserpodcast.com. Oh. Oh, oh, wait, do actually, that. you don't have any. I don't. I don't have a social address exists. yet. <laughs> I've never tried to access mine. I might have like eighty emails. <laughs> I, I think I'm forwarding your email yeah. to your other address, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. We just got some. Noise. Did you get that? Yeah, I just okay. got a bunch of noise in my head. Whatever. Mine's done that a few times, but not like that intense. Okay. It must be every time I fill up my wine glass. <laughs> Oops. That's okay. That's a sacrifice we can handle. I'm killing uh, it, guys. Uh, yeah, it did. It, it just did it again. I think it's way louder in mine than yours. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe you should turn it off. Huh? Turn. They don't, they don't. Now they don't work. Yeah, they work still. Emily, say something. Um. Wine. Oh, I don't know. Okay, they still work. It might have something to do with the fact that those are like electric noise canceling headphones that they were zapping us. They're creating external noise by canceling the noise that should be inside. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's literally how they work. Engineering boys and girls. Wow. Yeah, I guess I didn't really. That's literally how they work. Consider that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They have to create the same EM pulse, which would, when superpositioned over the noise you're getting, equal to zero. Yeah. So it's got to be going out into the atmosphere around me. Okay. Named Andrew Adamazansky. So Ad- this sounds like it's featured in Adam- a hitchhiker. Adamazansky. Adamazansky. Wait, hang on. <laughs> Say his name again. By Professor Adam Adamatsky. Andrew. Andrew. Adamatsky. Adam. We just call him Adam and the Ants. <laughs> Oh. I get that reference. That's okay. The band Adam and the Ants. Adam Ant. I'm not cool enough to have okay. that band. I've done it. I've downloaded the internet. All of it. <laughs> it sounds like everyone's talking with aluminum foil in their mouths. Oh well, that's just a joke that's playing like? on you. We're actually talking with aluminum foil in our mouth. Are you recording in a closet with my a mouth? My mouth is made of aluminum foil. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a tea party. (laughs) The laser tea party. (laughs) The laser tea party. We can shine lasers through tea. All right, anyway, let's finish this. I'm tired. (laughs) I'm getting tired. What time is it? It's 10 o'clock. Okay, I'm home. Yeah, it's time for bed. I was going to (laughs) say. I always have to go through, like, my high school fight song to get the difference between AG and AU because we were Goldwater so we were like AU H2O Wait, you went to Goldwater High School? Yeah. Weird. <laughs> no, I didn't realize that you grew up closer to where I used to live. Oh, uh, where did you go? Greenway. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Small well, world. Anyway, up New York. Yeah, yo, whoa. Yeah, what well, high school did you go to? P193. No. I don't Deer live Valley? in New York. Or not Deer Valley, Deer New Park? York. The thing about New York is like the, it's like take the population of this entire state and squeeze it into one house. And that's <laughs> New York. <laughs> so. Talk about Long Island. <laughs> yeah, I'm from, I'm from Long right. Island. So. Did you go to Deer Park High School? I did West go to Deer Island? Park High School. You did go to Deer Park High School? You yeah. went to my mother's high school. I have her class ring. <laughs> from Deer Park? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get a class ring because I thought this is the biggest waste of money. I'm not going to want to remember this. <laughs> It says. I'm not I don't know what a plasmon is. I don't. Wait. Plasmons. Yes. Plasmonic properties. Yeah. Aren't those the things in Bioshock that gives you superpowers? Those are plasmids. No, those are plasmids. <laughs> and they're composed of atoms. They're composed of atoms? No, Adam. Adam. <laughs> Adam is an acronym for something. You need to play some more Bioshock, Cameron. I've never actually played Bioshock. I've just always wanted to. You listen to the Cracked Podcast, but not this I, podcast? I listen to this podcast <laughs> only when I'm starring, starring but I like Do you listen to, to the Cracked podcast. podcast when you aren't starring at it? Yes. <laughs> it's good background noise when I'm cooking. Okay. All right. I don't subscribe to it, though, so they don't really know, and I don't ever rate it. I'm the worst. Well, <laughs> since he helped us out, you just listen to uh, the Collapsed Wave Function, which is a chemistry podcast. That. I will do that. We're pretty rad. Yeah, we're rad. 
just like science and engineering. Can you define yeah. rad? Can I define rad? Can you define rad? Because I, I really don't know what it means. This is one of those words I just didn't grow up with. I know the Aquabats sang a song about what it means to be super rad. They did. I will send you that song. About I'm not going to understand. 